this evening I'd like to speak about the preciousness of human life. And I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver called The Messenger. My work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, the blue plums, here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live. Reflect on that line in this poem, let me keep my mind on what matters. And I think that line in this poem really speaks to the question and the reflection, which I believe concerns us all in this practice. And perhaps it concerns us most deeply as we begin a retreat. Because really it is a question of asking why it is that we are here. What is the heart of our practice? What is our aspiration, our motivation, our intention? I'm sure that you've discovered today that when you begin a retreat, you so quickly find out that your life has followed you onto the cushion and into your walking path. And all the issues and the concerns that have really weighed on you in your life or occupied your attention, none of them just magically disappear because you have changed your address for a week. It's so clear to us that our minds and our bodies are our constant companions in this life. And all the things that a mind can do in this life, it will do here. It will do while you are on retreat. It's not a vacation from your mind. And when you really look at what your mind has been doing today, the moments when you've been awake enough to notice you probably have discovered that actually many things matter to you. Family, work, relationships, likes, dislikes, preferences, plans, memories. All the things that we can struggle with or dwell upon, all the things that we can hope for or delight in. This is what the Buddha calls the 10,000 joys and sorrows of every human life. 
And in this swirling vortex of thinking, of feeling, of so many thoughts that call for our attention over and over again, moment to moment, it's really not easy to keep in mind what it is that really matters or what is of most enduring value and importance for us in this life. And yet, in many ways, this is what we are asked to do. And to do that, we do exactly what we have been doing today. First, we need to find our seat. We need to find our feet. We need to begin to calm down, to begin to learn how to really listen inwardly without conditions of what we listen to. We need to learn what it means to attend to this just this one moment that we are in so that we can hear the story, the message that each moment is bringing to us. And then perhaps we do begin to remember that in this world, which is ever-changing, which is uncertain, that in this unpredictable and fragile life, we might begin to listen to the quieter voices within us that speak to us about what is most valuable, most enduring, what is about too important to forget. A friend of mine who's here, and she won't mind me telling you this story, had a 60th birthday party in a local town full of local people and it was just you know it was a local New England little town and the, the birthday party was quite a normal birthday party at first and then everybody was invited to go into this room where these tables were laid out and a slate in front of every chair and the invitation was to write your own tombstone Which I thought, you know, it could be an unusual way to begin a retreat, couldn't it? (laughs) Come in and find a slate in front of you, and please design your own tombstone. And what would you like it to say? You probably wouldn't like it to say, you know, here is the perfect breather. You know, here is the great achiever. You know, here is the most audacious striver of all time. It, you know, there's probably, you can probably think of all the things that you wouldn't like it to say, but what would you like it to say? What would it be like for us to begin a retreat with such an exercise? What would we wish to re- write about how we are living our life, about what we are devoted to, about what we are committed to in this moment? I think in this practice, we really begin by focusing our attention and focusing our, our hearts, really not just on our breathing or our bodies or the present moment, but we really begin this practice by focusing our hearts on this sense, this question of motivation and aspiration. And please, there isn't a right answer to this question. It's almost a question where the question is, is really more important than any answer 
that we can come up with. When we begin a sitting, when we begin a walking, what is this time in the service of? What is it dedicated to? Not to think in great abstracts, but in this very moment, why do we show up? And I think if we begin really to, to focus on that in some ways, we sense that we're not really here. Being here is not about having you know, neat meditation experiences that we're going to put in our portfolio. You know, being here is not just about getting certain states of concentration. Being here is really about discovering the depth of compassion and wisdom that really a liberated heart can know. In the Tibetan tradition where, of Buddhism where I first began to practice, this question of motivation is, is given a tremendous amount of weight and significance. And it, it quite puzzled me in the beginning because when I began to practice, I was, uh, I think, you know, quite a spiritual materialist, really. I, you know, I, I really wanted to, you know, to go from being this kind of disheveled hippie dropout to being a tantric master overnight, you know. So when I turned up, you know, I had turned up with this expectation about getting all these weighty teachings about tantric practice, etc. And I was pretty immediately disappointed because instead of being taught these things that I wanted, I was really sent away by my teacher um, to reflect and to contemplate actually for months on the question of aspiration and motivation. And in the Tibetan tradition, these are called preliminary practices. And they're there to essentially focus the heart and mind. And the Dalai Lama calls these practices preparing the ground of the mind. Preparing for what? Preparing the ground of the mind for understanding what really matters, for understanding the nature of compassion, of wakefulness. Now, these preliminary practices began with the contemplation of interconnectedness. And the way that it was framed in the Tibetan tradition was to, to visualize and to imagine that every single being in this world could and maybe was at some point your mother, then how would you wish to treat them? Now, this was difficult. <laughs> it was kind of alien to Tibetan culture to hear from people that they didn't like their mothers, you know. So there, was, so there were certain shifts that had to be made, you know, of imagining or visualizing that every single being in this world could at some point be your child. How would you wish to treat them, to relate to them? It was a training, that, that emphasis upon interconnectedness was really a training in kindness, in ethics, in respect, the, the qualities that make human relationship or relationship with all life truly meaningful and possible. 
There were endless reflections given about karma, about karma, about understanding that we don't just live in a random universe where our thoughts and our acts and our words have no consequence, but to understand that every single act, every single word, every single thought, in truth, splinters into a thousand consequences that touch the lives of countless beings around us. His teaching on karma was to really understand the ways that we are not only being shaped and informed by the world around us, but that we are, in truth, also shaping and informing the world that we live in. And it was an encouragement, really, to learn what it means to be a conscious participant in the kind of world that we live in. It was coming out of a sense of helplessness or haplessness that things just happen. It was certainly that it was never an invitation to become self-conscious or judgmental, but instead the invitation to be accountable and responsible. These preliminary practices, I think, were really an invitation to expand our hearts and to open our hearts into a sense of the family of beings, uh, to, to come out of the language of I and you and into the language of we and us. Another of the preliminary practices was actually this reflection upon the preciousness of our life the preciousness of our birth, the preciousness of human life. And the metaphor that is used is the story of the blind turtle. Encouraged to imagine a great ocean at the bottom of which lives a turtle without sight. A golden ring floats on the surface of the ocean, moved at random by the waves and the currents. The ring has no mind and is not looking for the turtle. The turtle, having no sight, cannot see the ring. The turtle comes to the surface only once in every hundred years. Can you imagine how rare it would be for the turtle to surface anywhere near the golden ring, let alone encircle its head with it? A precious human life is even more rare than this. This teaching of the preciousness of human life, in my understanding, has two central themes. One is the theme of appreciation, and the other is the theme of a mature urgency. And both of these are, both of these reflections prepare the ground of the mind. The first of those themes is appreciation capacity to cultivate and nurture appreciation. I think this this is actually important. You know, not one of us comes to be here without the small and the large acts of kindness and care of countless benefactors who have touched us and supported us through our lives from the moment that we were born. Even now, you probably might have partners or families or people at home or colleagues covering for you. You may have 
people supporting you with their, their good wishes, their energy. And as Mary Oliver puts it, the gratitude to be given this mind and heart and these body clothes, even if they are only still half perfect. They are enough. They are enough for us to be here. We can sometimes even appreciate, and this has some reservations, those people in the past or present who we don't even think of as being benefactors, people we may struggle with or be in conflict with. They may, those people may have played actually their own part in asking us to find new depths of patience and forgiveness and equanimity that in kindlier circumstances in our life we may never have been asked to find. Now, our life, I think, really doesn't seem that precious if it is fraught with worries and with burdens and with difficulties. And our life in this teaching is not precious just because we were born. Quite frankly, we can't take any credit for that. Our life is precious because of its potential, because it is pregnant with possibilities the possibilities of healing suffering, not only ours, but all suffering, the possibilities of discovering the same freedom that Buddhists through time have discovered, the possibilities of nurturing the compassion that bodhisattvas through time have known. And our life and our time here is really an invitation and a teaching in the preciousness of those possibilities. In this teaching, it said that used well, this body is our raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this body anchors us to suffering. Used well, this heart is a raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this heart anchors us to struggle. This heart, this mind, this body does the bidding of both ignorance and wisdom. And to know the difference between these two is part of the journey of focusing our hearts and minds. And I'm, I'm sure we can all recall times when our bodies and our hearts, our minds, have done the bidding of the unskillful, when we've acted or spoken or thoughts in ways that have hurt or injured ourselves or others. And I'm sure also that we can all recall times when this body, this mind, this heart really has been a raft to freedom of compassion. Times when we have loved well. Times when we have walked the path of kindness, of generosity, of forgiveness. Times when we have reached out to others with care and compassion. And I think all of these moments in our life, in many ways, are teaching us about what truly matters. Because it, it is probably so clear to us all that our capacity for care and for neglect live side by side, as do our capacity to love or to hate, our capacity to be afraid or to be fearless our capacity to be focused 
or to be distracted and fragmented, lives as a potentiality within the same mind. And what really comes into being, what grows and develops, is actually what we feed and nurture. And we will see that here on a retreat. If we feed distractedness, we will develop the habit of distractedness. If we feed our capacity to be present, we will develop actually the habit of being present. If we feed aversion and intolerance, we will surely develop the habit of aversion. And if we feed our capacity for kindness and for care, we will actually develop the inclination and the character of kindness and care. What we feed in the moment is really our choice and our intention of the moment. And in this practice, you know, there's so much of this practice, we've spoken a little bit about it today, is about being intentional. It's about just not being governed by habit or the past or by, by impulse. And it's about remembering. It's not just about being present and being awake, but it really is about remembering why we are present and why we are awake. And it is that remembering, you know, and mindfulness is sometimes translated as remembering or keeping in mind. And it is that remembering that really makes mindfulness not just a technique, but really a path of liberation to liberation and compassion. In this teaching, the traditional teaching of the preciousness of human life, it's a reflection really in many ways upon the freedoms that we are blessed with and also what we are freed from. We are freed to the life of possibilities. Those freedoms mean that we have the opportunity actually to be awake. Being here is an expression of freedom. And in, in part of this classical teaching, it says, for one, a precious human life is one who is not born in barbaric times or places. Now, we might have some questions about that. But certainly we do have the freedom to make choices. We don't wake up each morning as countless beings in this world do, wondering if they're going to eat today, wondering if they can find shelter, food, protection. Our lives are not governed completely by fear or the need to find a way to survive. We were reading recently uh, something that a woman in a refugee camp in Darfur said that she wakes up each morning with two bleak choices. That if she went out to collect water, she would risk being raped or murdered. If she didn't go out to collect water, her children could die. We are free. There's a freedom that comes, a fortunate, good fortune that comes with being born in a place and a that it's possible even to practice and to hear the Dharma. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I went to teach in Cuba, and it was a place where there was no teachers, there were no Dharma centers, there were no Dharma books. You know, even, you know, I mentioned something 
from that what the Dalai Lama had said once, and people asked me, who is the Dalai Lama? And practicing there, you know, in the most miserable of conditions, really, I cannot even begin to describe, you know, on dirty floors with no bathrooms and no running water and no cushions and, and you know, just the hunger to practice was so humbling that these people were so little had saved up out of their rations for a whole year to supplement the rations that were given by <coughs> the government for the course. And I was, just felt myself just really reflecting on the incredible nobility of that spirit and actually of the good fortune that we have. And of course, I, I don't say this in order to, to make us feel guilty or ashamed but actually to appreciate the miracle of waking up each morning, to have a body even if it's not perfect. It's certainly a body well enough to get us here. To have a mind, a heart, even though certainly not perfect. It is a heart and mind that can listen, that can attend, that can be nurtured and cared for. Isn't it a miracle that we have enough wisdom in our life not to be entirely governed by the craving for power or ambition or prestige, that we even have the freedom to investigate maybe how insubstantial some of these gains really are. Even to be able to let go is a tremendous freedom. We are not, of course, just lucky. We are fortunate. We are have fortunate to have the capacity to turn the tide of ill will and craving in our own hearts and minds, to turn the tide of the ill will and craving that gives rise to so much suffering and anguish in the world, to nurture all that truly matters. And I think these blessings really speak of capacity rather than incapacity. They really speak to us about possibility rather than impossibility. And our life is really made precious by really how we direct and focus our whole being, what we are dedicated to. The second contemplation that really follows on the heels of the preciousness of human life, of human birth, is a reflection upon impermanence. That this life, of course, is not only precious, but for all of us, it is so fragile. None of us know how long our life will be or how our life will end. And this reflection upon impermanence is truly part of the mandala of focusing our hearts. It's designed to evoke this kind of mature urgency in our path and our practice. Not hurry, not haste, but this sense of, of dedication to practice actually as if our lives depend upon it. And sometimes they do. Nagarjuna, he was a great Indian teacher, he once said that life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. 
how wondrous that we wake up still. And the Buddha, in the same theme, he said, there is no greater realization than being aware of the impermanence of our life, that just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of all animals' footprints, so is the meditation on impermanence the most powerful of all meditations. Now, it is, of course, not just impermanence that we're encouraged to reflect upon, not just change, but to know the implications of impermanence. Because I think there's such a vast difference between an intellectual agreement with impermanence, which, quite frankly, is not hard, and to know the implications of impermanence. to allow the implications of impermanence to inform and affect our attitude to all things and to how we live our lives, to live in the light of impermanence, to live in the light of change, I think is to live in a wholehearted way. It is to live in an undistracted way, to, to love deeply, all that is precious, moment to moment, to love it, and then to learn how to let it go. I think the implications of impermanence is truly the invitation to train ourselves in non-clinging and non-grasping. It's essentially to train ourselves in freedom and to cultivate in every dimension of our lives a liberated heart. Now, the first reflection in the... And I'm really not saying, talking about this to depress you. The very first reflection on the contemplation of impermanence is actually on the contemplation of death and dying. Not just as an abstract theory. Because like impermanence, none of us really argue with dying and death. We, we know they're part of our own life cycle. And, you know, in this culture, to contemplate death is, you know, is conventionally considered to be something kind of grim or morbid or something that Buddhists do. (laughs) 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 But I think the contemplation upon death and dying is only seen to be grim and morbid from the standpoint of denial and clinging. It's truth that contemplation on death and dying deeply awakens and brings our present and our life really into focus with a sense of dedication. I mean, I'm sure many of you have experienced this. I know I have experienced this in my life, that when someone you care for deeply or when someone you love dies, somehow it's always something of a surprise even though it's anticipated and even expected. Somehow the loss has that capacity to startle us into this remarkable quality of wakefulness. And we so immediately can let go of our arguments with that person, and we can feel at peace if we've said to that person, everything that it's been important to say, that we have let them know that they are loved and cared for. And we feel so deeply regretful 
if we have not communicated all that matters. And yet those moments when we're startled into wakefulness so easily subside again and we wake up in the morning with another day of postponement practice. You know, tomorrow's a better day to be awake, I'm sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a better, more perfect moment to be present in. You know, surely next week when I've finished all my tasks and met my deadlines, then I'm really going to have the opportunity to be mindful. And I'm going to remember to do that. Postponement practice, I'm sure you <laughs> can probably relate to it. It's, it is really one of the greatest obstacles to meet. There may not be a better moment. There may not be a perfect situation. What would it mean for us to live in the light of impermanence and to live in the light of our own death? We could actually find ourselves being deeply focused and less forgetful. Postponement practice sometimes comes in the form of us knowing that although on one level we know that everything and everyone that is born is bound to die, I mean, we all know this. It never really occurs to us to question whether this is true or not, does it? I don't think so. Although Stephen Levine once led a workshop on death and dying, and he, he asked a question to the group, and he said, is there anyone here who's going to die? Please raise your hand. And it took a really long time (laughs) before anyone put their hand up. So on one level, we don't argue with it, but on another level, we're constantly arguing with it. We know, at least I, I surely know, that life only gets shorter from this point on. It doesn't get longer. Patro Rinpoche, I can find it. He once said, death closes in, never pausing for an instant like the shadow of a mountain at sunset. But we tend to treat death like the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. Although we know we will die one day, it it doesn't always alter our attitude to life. We think surely it will be some other day, not this one. But how would our attitude change if it actually was this one? There was a Tibetan Lama who said, if I forget to meditate on death early in the morning, my whole morning's meditation becomes incomplete. If I forget to meditate on death at midday, my whole afternoon's meditation is wasted. If I forget to meditate on death in the evening, I shouldn't go to sleep. Motivation. What would our life be like if we could truly feel while sitting, standing, lying, walking that this is our last act, that this is our last meal, our last sunset, our last sight of the trees, to know that this might be the only moment possible to breathe this breath, that one breath may not, we may not be able to count on it being followed by another breath. Would we not then remember what truly matters? To love, to be present, to live wholeheartedly with appreciation, with gratitude, 
to explore what it might mean really to liberate this moment. To reflect upon impermanence and death is not to depress us, but it is really to lighten our hearts and minds. Somehow, you know, if we really can live in that spirit, all of these things that we obsess about, our worries, our preoccupations, our anxieties about the future, perhaps they can seem just a little bit less burdensome. Our regrets, our guilts that we carry about the past, perhaps we can carry them with just a little bit more ease to feel just a little less entangled. Our struggles to get one thing, to get rid of another, our strivings for one state of experience or another state of experience, maybe we see them as just a little more empty. And we come home to what truly matters, the love, the compassion, the understanding, the wakefulness. We can nurture in this moment as if it's the only moment it's possible to do so. In this same teaching, it's encouraged, think about death and impermanence for a long time. Once you're certain you're going to die, you will no longer find it hard to put aside harmful action, nor difficult to do what is wise and loving. After that, meditate for a long time on love and compassion. Once love fills your heart, you will no longer find it hard to act for the benefit of all beings. Then meditate for a long time on emptiness. And once you fully understand emptiness, the natural state, you will no longer find it hard to dispel all your delusions. This human life is made precious, I think, by our dedication to all of these, to our willingness to to allow the confusions of our heart to subside and calm with understanding and with tenderness, to let everything that divides us from others, that keeps us locked in struggle and suffering, to begin to calm with kindness and with compassion, and then to dedicate ourselves moment to moment to wakefulness for the well-being of ourselves, for the well-being of all beings. In this tradition, this is what is called living a noble life, to live a noble life with a noble heart, And I feel this is what this retreat is about. It's about trusting in that possibility of of really discovering that nobility of heart. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream, 
and sleep each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up. There's some time for a walking period and then the, the last group sitting of the day not too long and would mention that it's truly a delightful time to sit here in the evenings, quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.